Hey, I'm John Dervage with Our Revolution Colorado Springs. Uh, with me today is Stephanie Rose Spaulding, who is running for United States Senate in Colorado in 2020. Yes, hello. Yeah, uh, uh, just tell me a little bit about your campaign and your background. So, I am running for U.S. Senate here in Colorado. I ran for the U.S. House in the last election cycle, and because of the momentum that we were able to build and garner from that race, there are individuals across the state, not in the district, who reached out to me and really encouraged me to run. Some of them actually pledged for me to run, and so that, in a lot of ways, is why I am back in the arena and the public sphere working to earn the vote of Coloradans for 2020 as the U.S. Senator. And I come from education. I've been in the University of Colorado for 20 years, no, in education for 20 years, at the university for nine of those years. I chair our Women's and Ethnic Studies program. I am tenured, so PhD from Purdue University. I teach, again, courses on privilege and oppression and how to dismantle those systems. Yeah, and that is definitely something I think that the current system desperately needs. Absolutely. Uh, Because there's obviously been a lot of uh, power in a specific type of demographic and a specific type of uh, you know individual for how I think for I could, you could argue for since the beginning of United States history. Uh, so what is your platform then moving forward? Like what are some of your proposals on how to uh, dismantle that sort of um, oppression that we see? So to to your point. Um, Some would say, or at least right now in 2019, we are seeing from the New York Times and from other outlets and even organizations this conversation around 1619. Mm -hmm. So for those who are listening and don't know, 1619 was the year that the first um, slaves were brought to the shores of the United States in Virginia. And... For others, and I would be one of them, and that is extremely pivotal, and we need to have those conversations because most people do not know this history and how it impacts the fabric and the structure of the United States in and of itself. But it's a lot earlier, and when we we just stamp 1619 as a starting point, then we miss indigenous communities and indigenous populations that um, were wiped out because of colonialism and and, um, expansion and and empire. So though I have a very specific connection to 1619 in my own personal life as an African American woman, I also from a human perspective recognize that it is much deeper than that. So to answer your question about my platform, it begins by centering human dignity and decency. Right, So many of us who run for office or others, they come into the conversation and they're like, I want to tackle the environment, I want to tackle economics, I want to tackle this, this, this. For me, if we don't first center the dignity and the humanity of human beings, we can't get to the work of all of those other issues. So that is why my platform focuses on dignity and decency first. And from there, um, addressing issues of climate crisis, right? Yeah. Because, and, and it's not that other species on the planet are not impacted by the mm-hmm. crises, 
but it is what we as human beings have done or not done that has created the, the crisis, right? Like dolphins didn't create the, the climate crisis. And so if we don't look at our role mm-hmm. in that system and what has happened to impact the, the environment, then we will come up with solutions that are ineffective. So environmental crisis is one of the pillars of our platform addressing healthcare and Medicare for All is another pillar of our platform because again, if people are not healthy, well, and whole, then you don't honor their humanity. Additionally, immigration is another pillar of that platform and immigration reform, making sure that we are seeing and honoring the humanity of people who are coming to our our borders um, and why they're coming because all of these items are intersectional and I don't want to give like a a lecture from class but um, I will just like put a footnote out there for the work of 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 a lot of people who are doing this justice work that talk about a birdcage right and and many of these issues are one wire on the system that creates the birdcage and and keeps people oppressed so I'll stop there because I talked a lot (laughs) yeah I mean there's a lot of uh I think it's good. That's a good like foundation for where I think a lot of future uh, discussions are going to go. Um, so I think the first item that you brought up, um, and I saw your performance at the Climate Forum. I saw that you were at the Climate Forum. at a Climate Forum in Colorado Springs about a, what, a week or so ago. Uh, it was really, I was, it was an extremely good forum, and I think yeah, you did really good. And I think. Uh, something that you brought to the table that I guess I never really considered was the social justice aspect of climate change. Because there is, you know, clearly a disproportionate effect on minority communities that climate change affects. And like, you know, not just in America, but you think about like islands and, you know, places that, you know, potentially could not exist in 20 to 30 years. Shorter than that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like that is, you know, social, there's a huge social justice aspect to climate change. Yes. Um, so can you uh, explain a little bit about um, what you plan to do to address climate change, like what your, your proposals kind of are? Absolutely. Um, so I am an advocate of a number of the policies that have been put forth by individuals like Jay Inslee and Barney Sanders, as well as Elizabeth Warren. Um, there is amazing expertise from all of their their platforms. I agree with Inslee that we have to move this date from 2050 to 2030, like um, in terms of being um, renewable and 100% renewable by 2030 because the the science is telling us otherwise, that Mm -hmm. we are really at a point where, and and even more so, (laughs) because I'm a researcher. I may not be an expert in that area, but when I want to know and dive deeper, I am a researcher. And we think about this two degrees Celsius shift. The reality is there are so many places that have already experienced this shift, right? Yeah, that's an Um, average, right? And so that is an average, and the way the planet operates, it's not like it's just all gonna be two degrees at one point. Yeah. So, for, for moving towards 100% renewables by 2030, um, 
making sure that we are building the infrastructure in the United States to have um, a national grid for electricity to be powered by solar and wind at, um, at stable rates, right? That, uh, and not like rates in terms of money, but that intermittency um, impacts the way that electricity is delivered. Yes. So um, as Bernie talks about creating from the Green New Deal, job infrastructure because we need people to be at work putting forth the technology that will allow allow communities to survive and thrive on renewable energies and right now we don't have that so the jobs package from the green new deal is exponentially important as well as the transition that is socially just when we look at Coloradans and we can say yes we want to move Colorado forward there are so many communities that have um, built their livelihoods on fossil industry and Mm -hmm. it is not just to to sit and turn around and just blame them and leave them behind right so making sure that those transitions are just when we move forward, that we are investing in communities that have been impacted the most, which is why I also connect Medicare for All to a Green New Deal, because you have marginalized communities that have been impacted by fossil and um, environmental racism that are experiencing the health outcomes and the crises of health from from what we have not done environmentally. And so we can't say we're going to move them forward when they are plagued by asthma or they are li- um, living with lead poisoning, their water is horrid um, and non-drinkable. So again, for me, this is this. These are the issues that I would a- attack and address as senator for Colorado. Yeah, I mean, like the Green New Deal. I think Bernie's platform stands uh, 20 million new jobs, mm-hmm. and that's specifically you know those are good paying renewable jobs that. All of those don't necessarily mean that the people who work in the fossil fuel industry will just be, you know, thrown to the curb. Like a lot of those jobs will also apply to those individuals as well. Uh, and in fact, they probably, you know, on average, they pay more and probably won't have as many adverse health effects. Right. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of benefits there. Um, and you mentioned like you know the marginalized communities have been negatively impacted by climate change the most. You know, I think of you know areas like that you know rural rural areas that have you know droughts almost every almost every day now during the summers that can't even like really raise their crops. And you know Colorado is you know large. There's a lot of rural space. Um, how have you reached out to those individuals and tried to like kind of talk talk about climate change and how that can affect their lives in the rural communities in Colorado? So I think like. Well, as every Senate candidate should, we've we've driven across the state and had intimate conversations with individuals in in these communities in rural space. Some of them are farmers, some of them are ranchers, others are, um, again, coming out of mining or extracting um, space. And if you are out in Durango or Mancus or um, Ridgeway, these are very serious concerns. Um, one of the major concerns for Colorado as a state is the way in which we 
negotiate water. And um, yeah. right now, water for Colorado, of course, is um, an interstate compact. And so there are other, other states downstream that rely on water sources from Colorado. And when <laughs> some of the water laws that we have are the most convoluted laws that um, the average person, and I would even say legislature, doesn't even know how um, intricate the that the law itself works. Um, so, for instance, one one thing that I, I found like really just mind blowing is that we have a responsibility of sending water downstream. Yeah. Even if they don't use it, we have to give it. Even if the water is not produced, we have to give it, like right? Like a quarter so, that much. Yes. So so if there is a drought, we still have to we are obligated to meeting what um, New Mexico, California or whatever um, needs, right? Mm -hmm. Um and you know, like our like we can look at Pikes Peak right now, we have just the barely snow on, on top of the mountains. So one thing in bringing farmers and ranchers into the conversation is how how do we bring their voices, their innovation into addressing our climate crises? Um, the work that they do with um, so California has a healthy soil yeah. project, um, and they just released their first like grants to about 50 farmers who are in, engaged in this program and um, they are asking for farmers who are are doing the innovative work of um, diversity in their crops mm -hmm. sequestering carbon um, by also if you're a rancher like also planting trees and um, in like along your your ranch way um, so that the way in which the soil itself bringing in natural plants back to the soil so yeah. that we can um, so we can sequester that carbon that is released and we can farm in um, better ways that help like, you know fight climate crisis so yeah I've been building relationship with people throughout Salida and um, yeah, the four corners and just you know and just really listening because the reality is if we come in as the expert yeah then we have already alienated so many people and the last thing that I will will point to on that topic is I was at a forum a few days ago um, and his retired retiree uh, union guy who was like the only way we can pay for this is if you raise my taxes and I, you know, just trying to negate that negative idea. And it is not the only way that we can address climate crises. One of the biggest issues that we have is $20 billion that, that subsidize fossil energy yeah. right now. So there, there are ways that we can spend money differently that we already have access to. For sure. Yeah, I mean, like, you, if you just take care of the subsidizing, the, uh, get rid of the subsidizing that we do for the fossil fuel industry over 10 years, that raises, like, $3 trillion. And so there is ways to pay for it that aren't going to affect the taxpayer. Actually, I believe almost every, if not every, I'd say, comprehensive uh, climate change proposal 
does not raise people's taxes. It's all coming through corporations and through. Uh, maybe maybe if you're Jeff Bezos, you might have to pay a little bit more. Uh, but, I don't mind that. Yeah, I don't mind that either. So yeah, and the other aspect that you brought up too, um, that I think a lot of people don't necessarily make that parallel connection between, you know, that how climate affects their health, um, and how, you know, we have a here in Colorado Springs we have a coal burning power plant just in the downtown. Um, I don't even want to think about how that's going to affect my lungs in the future. Uh, so there's there are like you know health uh, benefits of having cleaner energy sources as well. Yes. Um, but also going a little bit further than that to talk about Medicare for all. You know there are people who are, do do suffer from you know black lung and things that they've or experiences that they've had working in coal mines. You know, how do you convince people who work in like those industries that a program like Medicare for All is actually you know beneficial for them? So for me, it's a matter of is is what you have like what you have access to right now is it working for you? Mm-hmm. And the vast majority of people, it is not working for them. Whether it is having to make the decision on paying mortgage or rent versus the prescription drugs that you might need. I have a mother in Douglas County who her son's asthma medication costs $300, $300 a month. Um, And they are on... I, I say everybody's on fixed income. If you have a salary, that's what a fixed yeah. income is. You know? um, so most people are on standardized incomes and making that decision, um, what you have is already ineffective. And again, I know that the talking points try to disparage um, the plans for Medicare for All saying like it's going to increase this, this, and a third. One, you're already paying for it. Mm-hmm. You are already paying for it, and you don't have sufficient health care, right? Yeah. So, if we are simply asking to reframe the way you pay for it, and you get more than what you have already, mm-hmm. um, it works better for you. You get to be alive to see your children get married and have children of their own. Right now, we are trying to do everything, at least... I am, and a lot of other progressives that I know, we're trying to do everything possible to take care of as many people as possible, as opposed to the current model that is, if you can get in here, then we'll take care of you. And then what, what care we provide is insufficient anyway. Yeah, I feel like everyone has a story, like everyone, at least, at least one story, most people have several of where the current the way the current system works they didn't want to call an ambulance because right. uh, had an emergency or they left you know that the hospital and had tens of thousands of dollars in debt and had to basically take out a second mortgage on their home to pay for their medical debt i mean that's not sustainable right? my father is retired chicago mm-hmm. public school teacher so is my mother and um in their retirement and my father is having some health challenges or whatever. In their retirement, the health care that they have access to literally limits the number 
of times that you can call an ambulance. So my parents are having a conversation about you can't fall down. Yeah. You can't fall down because I can't pick you up and I can't call an ambulance. Yeah, I have to like foresee the future to make sure that you're not going to have an accident because there's a quote on how many ambulance calls. Like that's ridiculous. It is. It is ridiculous. Yeah, I just think too like no other country, modern country in the world has to deal with that. Right. Uh, we're the only one. We pay twice as more for our medical treatment than any other country. I mean, that's ridiculous. Yes, so, I agree. Yeah, and I think that uh, the other aspect too that people don't necessarily always th- or you know, there's always the talking points about you know, like you said, raising the taxes. Like I'm going to pay, have to pay more for this. On average, I mean, the average person would, or average family would save three thousand dollars. Yes. So um, the other thing that comes up when you t- we talk about Medicare for all is just the differentiation between what that actually means. Because there's a lot of uh, proposals out there, people say in you know debates and in media that they're for Medicare for all, yet they, it isn't single payer or it doesn't cover mental health or it doesn't cover you know di- and dental and eye care. What's your, like, is your formal definition of Medicare for all single payer? Or it is, is a single payer and it's comprehensive of all of the care that will allow a person to be well. Um, and let me just, I don't really talk about a lot of this um, on camera, nonetheless. Um, we can try to crop it. <laughs> it's okay. Um, I grew up, well, I was born with um, a birth defect that only allowed me one and a half sets of teeth. So I had a full set of primary teeth and not a full set of adult teeth. And so when my primary teeth started to fall out, as they they would, um, nothing was there to replace them. Mm-hmm. This was this was genetic. Um, it just like and I got I got bad eyes and, <laughs> and bad teeth, right? Um, and. I, my mom took me to the dentist. It wasn't anything. It wasn't like I was eating too much sugar or anything like that. I probably yeah. was still eating too much sugar, but it wasn't behavior. <laughs> Don't we all? It was medical. Yeah. And um, imagine being like preteen and a teenager with one and a half sets of teeth, like a jacked up mouth. Yeah. Um, kids are relentless. But going to the dentist and wanting to get orthodontics done, wanting to get work on my mouth done, it was labeled as cosmetic. Yep. And so it was not covered by our health insurance. So it was not until I was a graduate student and then a professor that I was able to actually address the issues of my mouth because they were not seen as a medical problem. Now they'll tell you, like every dentist will tell you that if your mouth is not healthy, then the rest of your body is not healthy. But insurance-wise, it was cosmetic. Um, And so when I think about my own experience and issues with with healthcare, um, so literally I have like a Honda, in my mouth because I pay like $27,000. Yeah. <laughs> um, but when I, I think about that and what other families are facing, mm-hmm. everything from 
vision to dental, mental health, um, and mental health not in the sense that you are experiencing a crisis, mental health in the, in, the, in the sense that if you have to go regularly to get an annual checkup, everybody, like we need to change the stigma around mental health. For sure. um, reproductive health, everything is covered. Yeah. All right, uh, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, we'll be back in a little bit. Uh, continue talking to Stephanie Rose Spalding, who's running for U.S. Senate. Hey, this is John. Uh, just a quick reminder, Our Revolution Colorado Springs is uh, volunteer donation based. Um, so if you like our videos uh, or want to find out more about Our Revolution Colorado Springs, get more involved, you can go to our website at ourrevolutioncs.com or find us on Facebook, find us on Meetup, uh, basically every social media platform. We hopefully have some groups. So feel free to join us. Uh, we have meetings as well planned for the next few months. Uh, debate watch parties, canvassing events for Bernie Sanders. Eventually, we're going to be going door to door for uh, candidates in the area that we feel share our revolution's message. So, you know, find us on Facebook and just keep active on that, and you can see what events we have coming up. We also have a newsletter that we're starting to send out monthly. Uh, again, lists all the major developments, as well as some highlights from local news stories, uh, campaign news stories from the Democratic primary, and so on. So. Uh, if you want to get subscribed to that, uh, you can find it the link in our Facebook or on our website and uh, get you signed up there. So I think that's it. Without further ado, uh, the second half of our interview with Stephanie Rule Spalding, who's running for United States Senate in Colorado uh, in 2020. So I think the third thing you mentioned in your introduction was immigration. And I... Do you remember, I thought you actually posted some pictures on social media, how you actually went down to the border. Uh, and you, can you tell us a little bit about that experience and what you kind of learned? So I've been to the border a couple times now, and I have plans um, to definitely go back. And the first time I went, um, I was moved on Independence Day. And so for normal campaign processes or whatever, um, major holidays like that are like golden tickets for candidates because you get people who are out about in the streets and you get to shake a lot of hands and kiss babies. That's what my dad calls it. <laughs> um, so there are parades and we had scheduled to go to like three different parades throughout Southern Colorado and um, it was like July 3rd and something in my spirit was just like, this is honestly, and I know my mom will be to watch this, this is some bullshit, yeah. right? Um, that we as a nation are celebrating this idea about independence and freedom and liberty and, and all the things, right? And to wake up and just do business as usual, I, it was eating away at my spirit. I, mean, I don't know about anybody else, but it was eating away at my spirit. Again, I am a black woman in the United States, so these words and the pursuit of these ideas mean something for me, very specific. So I couldn't do it. I told my political director, and at the time my field director, that I wasn't feeling, you know, like just going to some parades and shooting some fireworks and eating a hamburger. I don't eat hamburgers anyway, but still. Um, so I woke up that morning. It was six o'clock in the morning. 
and I drove to El Paso, Texas. So from El Paso County to El Paso, Texas. And for me, I just, I wanted to see from my own eye, with my own eyes. Um, I wanted my feet to be on the soil. I wanted to know um, what this Rio Grande it looks like at that, at that space. Um, so, in my spirit, it was it was absolutely the right thing to do. And then I've gone back since with organizations like Vote Common Good um, that um, are working with immigrants and advocating for humane and just treatment. Mm -hmm. The last time that I went, there was a congressional hearing. Um, Veronica Escobar, Congresswoman Veronica Escobar, who is the congresswoman of that district, was holding a congressional hearing, and there was testimony out, out of D.C., and that's a rare thing to have a congressional hearing out of the Capitol mm -hmm. and in district, but it was that serious for her, um, for her colleagues to be able to see what is happening. So I was there for that, and the testimony from individuals from like the ACLU and um, organizations that have been working with families on the ground, it was appalling. It was appalling. Like the policies that this administration has put in place remain in Mexico, or the carte blanche, um, you know, space that. Border Patrol and Customs have, right? We yeah. met with families, um, husband and wife, who are migrant laborers and have not been able to see their family in 14 years. Um, those are the things that were heartbreaking, but what was most surprising was that these congressmen and women didn't know what was going on. And so, even from their questions, they were exasperated. Like, they were like, like, who set things up this way? And so you have these expert individuals on the ground saying, well, like, you all approved the budget, and you, like, um, it's coming down from D.C. And these, these weren't, like, freshmen yeah. congressmen and women. They were senior individuals that had no idea of what was happening on the ground. And so for me, as a candidate running for U.S. Senate, um, that's harrowing because, again, you all continue to sign budgets yeah. and send money this way. But these people from the ACLU are telling you we can't even go into speak to yeah. migrants, right? We can't even go to court with them. We're being told that we can't even advocate with them. And that's not how it's supposed to work. Yeah. Um, so it was already heartbreaking, but from a legislative perspective, it was it was scary and angering. Um, and there are more people who are currently in Congress who need to bring their behinds to to the border. Yeah, because I think that that's something you you see every once in a while, like they arrange a trip and it gets some media publicity. I'd argue probably not enough. Um, but to a certain point, I always ask myself, like, is cruelty the point? Is that really what they're trying to show here? Are they trying to sh make a point to be 
cruel on purpose to try to attract people from coming over, or are they just racist, probably, most likely, based off of what we've seen uh, from Facebook groups that uh, ICE Patrol border agents have been a part of. Uh, but like, do you believe cruelty is the point? I think it's a combination of both, right? The, um, absolutely. This administration is racist. Yeah. Um, but it's not just this administration. Um, racism is part of the fabric of who we are as Americans. Yes, um, immigrants, particularly from Southern and Central America, serve, have been used to serve a purpose for U.S. economic development. Yeah. Um, and that is built in racism, racist capitalism. So yes, <laughs> um, it is. This practice right now, I think, is definitely about cruelty, but cruelty to be a distraction mm -hmm. from other things that this administration is also doing. Um, this man is a mastermind of how to control media narrative. And so when there are things that he really doesn't want the American public to be paying attention to, like the hundreds of judges that have been installed in benches across this country in federal yeah. courts, then they become a pawn and a target um, to distract our attention. And I want to say it hasn't started. It, it, it hasn't started with this man in office. Yeah. And we would um, we'd be lying to ourselves to think that he is the cause and orchestrator of all of these policies. And I know some people will say and they will defend, but America has not been great on immigration no. <laughs> for a long time. Um, and... And we need people in office who will recognize that and who will reconcile with that. Yeah, because you hear a lot about how, you know, tr one, if we remove Trump, you know, that solves a lot of problems. Like, and obviously, like, he's a, I think, a, a very, very clear sign of what the Republican Party has become. But I'd also could argue what they... <laughs> They were under the surface for the last, yeah, you know, at least 20 decades. Uh, how do we hold the whole party? Do or should we hold the whole party accountable? Uh, as well as, you know, I, I shouldn't just say Republicans. I mean, there, there's been some centrist Democrats, and Democrats who've had horrible, horrible immigration policies as well. Uh, should we just? I would hold America accountable. I would hold us all accountable um, for those of us that um, may not be the ones writing legislation, but we are complicit in wanting the things that we want, right? And I came to this realization and, and starting my own work to do differently from my space of privilege, um, teaching and teaching you know, social justice at university and one year we had students where environmental and food justice was like coming up a lot, a lot. And I am originally from Chicago. So I went home, that's where my family is. I went home for a holiday in December um, 
both my birthdays, my birthday and my father's birthday is in December, and of course, we celebrate Christmas. And I was angry at my brother <laughs> because he makes like really good cheesecake, <laughs> but he was trying not to make cheesecake. And I like it with strawberries, right? So I'm running around. I finally convinced him to make cheesecake for our gathering. But I'm running around trying to find strawberries. And I'm in the store, and I'm grocery shopping, and I'm mad at the store. I'm like, why are these strawberries like $4.50 and cent for a pound? Um, not even a pound, like a half a pound yeah. or something like that. I was mad. And then, like, something in the spirit, and I am a very spirit-filled person, was like, because it's December, and it's Chicago. Strawberries don't grow in December in Chicago. And so you, you are paying for the fact that you want strawberries in December in Chicago. Um, so I tell that story um, because I don't let my students get away with not figuring out the spaces where they are privileged, right? Yeah. Where it's easy for us to connect with our oppressions, but not wanting to identify our privilege. The way in which agribusiness and agroeconomy works in the United States is part and parcel to mm -hmm. a lot of the economic um, injustice happening in countries where people are forced to migrate. Yeah. Um, the, the fact that we want lettuce for 49 cents a head is part and partial why immigrant communities are marginalized and minoritized through agri-labor. Yeah. Um, so I hold us all accountable. Yes, there's some asinine stuff that this administration and the GOP is allowing and that level of we have to immediately address this, like separating children from their families, that's some evil. Yeah. <laughs> but we can't just, like, once we get that squared away, be like, okay, our hands are clean. Yeah, I mean, I think people understanding what their background is, where the privilege uh, lies, uh, is extremely important. And also just having empathy. I mean, yes. being able to, you don't have to, you know, Put, you don't have to be able to like physically put yourself in a person's shoes. Like I don't think you can actually do that. But at least trying to ask questions, understand, and like empathize about their situation. I mean, there's, you know, and I that kind of makes me think of the next, you know, next point. It's like homelessness, right? Yeah. Because a lot of people put stigmas on home, people who are homeless. As I know, you're, you know, you're, you're, you put yourself in that situation. You didn't pull yourself up by the proper bootstraps, or you, you know, you're a druggie or something. Like, yeah. I hate that statement. Yeah, I know. I, yeah, uh, but I mean, we see a lot of homelessness here in Colorado Springs. Like it's you know in Denver and really across the uh, you know the mountain the, the mountain region. I mean, you see a lot of homelessness in general. So, how do we address that issue moving forward? Um, so again, as I've shared with a lot of this conversation, is intersectional, and so our approach has to be multi pronged, right? Um, Yes, we need to build and offer affordable housing, but we also have to recognize that most of what happens in homelessness is systemically rooted in the way in which poverty is created. Um, so, the, and poverty is 
prolonged and um, generationally impacted because of education and lack thereof and disparities in education and wealth building and lack of and education wealth building and disparities rooted in racism so it's all systemically working in conjunction with each other so we have to address education equity because education equity is one of the um, proven factors that brings and helps people to get out of poverty. We also have to um, create and provide job opportunities that um, celebrate who people are. Mm -hmm. Just getting a degree (laughs) from a university is not going to guarantee people work um, and is not going to guarantee people livable and sustainable wages. So our economy, our work economy, has to focus on working families and, um, and working labor. And also, going back to the education piece, not only selling the narrative that a bachelor's degree is salvation for, for high school students, yeah. um, unless we're making that education free, um, as well as tracking, right? We have we should be graduating students who could go into the workforce if they choose in trade or um, entrepreneurship if they choose having a four-year degree is not the path for everyone and i say that as an educator who wants like go get a phd i'm waiting for you to say like i'm going to grad school i'm going to go get a phd right um i want as many people to have the opportunity if that is what is going to benefit their lives. Mm-hmm. But we have young girls coming out of school who have spent their lives, like I said, I grew up on the south side of Chicago, have spent their lives doing hair. Like they, they, their entire career through high school, they were doing hair. Why don't they have cosmetology licenses yeah. when they graduate, right? Mm-hmm. So that they themselves can start their own business or at least are licensed to work if they choose to put themselves yeah. through school. Um, I would prefer that we make college free <laughs> and that we are investing in programs around education that looks at the dearth of laborers and in industries yes. so that those individuals, if they are learning in this community, are being trained to respond to the job opportunities that will be in a community. So I think all of those things work hand in hand. Yes, we need affordable housing, we need equity in education, and then we need job opportunities. Would you be for uh, elimination of all student debt? I am a tenured professor, and I've been tenured for a while now, and I'm still paying back student loans. I'm I'm, I'm down for the elimination of debt. Because I mean, I think that's one of those bottlenecks a lot of students uh, face. I mean, you can't necessarily buy a house or start to you know, even think about getting married or have kids when yep. you have a hundred thousand dollars student debt. Absolutely. So, so. Yep. All right. What? Wrap it up. Oh, oh cut it. <laughs> Well, I want to thank you for your time. Uh, I, mean, I think it was a really good conversation. I, you know, I really appreciate the you know, personal stories that you bring. And I think 
you know, just judging by your performance on the Climate Forum, I'm really excited to uh, see you in this race and hope you the best. Thank you. So, it's um, been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.